Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Today, my guest is Cheryl Fuller. Cheryl is a Jungian psychotherapist living in the US. She is passionately interested in depth psychology, psychotherapy, feminism, and fat studies. Her book, The Fat Lady Sings, weaves these threads into a tapestry of personal experience, critique of psychoanalytic theory, and treatment of fatness in the context of the war on obesity. Hers is the life of a fat woman, thus her interest in the lived experience of fat people, the absence of such voices in discussions of weight, and in the effects of fat phobia and the cultural fat complex. She holds a BA in psychology from Duke University, MA in clinical psychology from the University of Connecticut, and PhD in Jungian studies from the Union Institute. So hi, Cheryl, and welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. So I first heard about you on Shrink Rat Radio and I've been mm-hmm. um, singing your praises ever since. You raised a lot of topics that I hadn't really, I guess, thought about before. And mm-hmm. so I knew when I started this podcast that I really wanted to have you as a guest. So would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a, a Jungian psychotherapist and what it, <laughs> what it was that led you to writing your book, The Fat Lady Sings? Well, you said my introduction. I'm a psychotherapist. I live in the state of Maine overlooking um, an inlet of the Atlantic Ocean. So oh, wow. we're on opposite, totally opposite sides of the world. We are. I'm married uh, it's my second marriage. I have two grown children who both live in Maine as well. And I have two grandchildren and three cats. Ah, <laughs> so, okay. So keep my world populated. I've been in private practice now for 43 years. Oh, wow. I started out in community mental health a long time ago, working with young children. But when I had my own children, i I didn't want to work with little kids anymore. Mm -hmm. So I've been working with adults all that, almost all that time. I became acquainted with Jung when I was in college, um, when I was too young to actually understand what it was about, because at that time, the chair of the department at Duke was a Jungian, which was really unusual. And one of the courses I took, we were assigned to learn, you know, just some basics about Jung, which interested me. But I, like I said, I was too young to really understand it. So if we fast forward to my mid to late 30s, um, when I got, I, I became acquainted with a group of Jungians in Portland, Maine, somewhat south of where I live now. And they started bringing in a lot of interesting speakers, among which was Noor Hall, who wrote The Moon and the Virgin. And I was fascinated by the book and by her presentation. So I began reading, 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 as is my want to do. And um, I was going to um, workshops and seminars in Boston. At that time, there were no union analysts in Maine, so I couldn't start analysis. But by the end of the 80s, there were a couple here, and I started 
an analysis with a woman uh, that lasted three years. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm -hmm. she looked just like my mother. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that Very wasn't funny. good. <laughs> yes. So uh, then I started working with a, a male analyst here. And in fact, I just ended with him oh, um, wow. in March. There was a six-year break in there. So sure. it's like an analysis in two big chunks. And actually, the book, in part, grew out of my analysis. Okay. Can you say more about that? In what way? Sure. Well, it was my experience to then, and I think it is true for most fat women, that there was nothing in my life that I saw any kind of health care or mental health professional about that losing weight wasn't the solution. Mm. So um, I announced... I showed up in his office mm. that my weight was non-negotiable. Uh-huh. So he, we worked with that. We, we battled about things. And um, he used a dream of mine in an article he wrote and get, showed me the draft to see if I was okay with it. And there was one line in it that really bothered me. And it was, her weight belies her intelligence. <sighs> Wow. And I went through the roof about it. Yeah. So he and I argued about that for some time. He freely admits that was not only not the right thing to say, it was wrong. Yeah. So the book, in a way, is an outgrowth of both his and my education and what this is all about. So I dedicate the book to him because of that. Okay. And so when you talk about the book, when you talk about the cultural fat complex and its effects, yep. for people who haven't heard that term before, what is the cultural fat complex? We have attitudes that go pretty unquestioned, but that have emotional content to them. And we, we see it most easily in things like race or religion but I propose that there's also one about fat mm. in which our body size becomes the repository for all kinds of hated and disowned things and fears. It's not present in every culture, but that's changing fairly rapidly. When you say it's not present in every culture, do you mean that it's, I know there was a study about Fiji. Yes, exactly. Yes. When American television came. <laughs> yeah. So that's what you're talking about when you. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And there's some places in Africa or tribal groups in Africa where young women are fed to make them fatter. So they'd be more desirable to marry. Yeah, um, okay. But that's by far the exception. So what you're saying now is that, um, and it's something that I've noticed as well, is that since, since uh, I guess, me, social media and TV and all those kind of oh, yeah. things have crept its way into those countries that it's becoming more of an issue there as well. Susie Orbach has a little book called Body. Oh, yes, and, another um, one, yep. It's a great, terrific book. And her point that we never see in on television mm. or in print unretouched images. Uh -huh. So the images that we see and compare ourselves to aren't even real. Yep. And fat people, fat women, if they are represented at all, mm. are represented in ways that are about shaming or mocking um, them rather than portraying them as people just living their lives. And that gives us the phenomenon of the headless fatty. 
Oh, yes, yes. I was going to ask you about the Tess Halliday cover, but I'll come back to that in a moment. When we, if we come back to the cultural fat complex, what, mm-hmm. what are the cultural messages around the obesity epidemic and being fat? It's what, about what? gluttony. gluttony. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I had a fascinating experience. I was taking um, a writing workshop at Washington Psychoanalytic, and it was for people who wanted to write psychologically. Uh So I was presenting some of the first part of my book. And um, one of the analysts there said, I said, uh, I'm sure I don't eat differently from most of you. Mm. Because the assumption is gluttony, overeating, lots of junk food. And she says to me, oh, would you tell us what you eat? And I said, no, you're just proving my point. Yeah, yes, because <laughs> the assumption is I can't possibly eat the way you do because yeah. if I did, I'd look like you. Yeah. She was thin. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem when we think about health at every size, for example. Oh, yeah. A lot of the research shows that you can't actually determine someone's health by their size. No. So what are the other messages that are sent? So it's gluttony. You, you can't possibly be eating like that. You're lazy. Lazy, um, yep. No one will want you. That's uh, a big one. No one will ever want you. Yeah. And so you, and you deserve what you experience. Yeah. It's very punitive. Yeah, very punitive. Gosh. And, you know, if we come back to this representation of fat people in the media, there was a story I shared with you in uh, the email before uh, we've been speaking today. And when we think about there's many medical health and fitness professionals and they strenuously <laughs> yeah, disagree with the term health at every size, size acceptance or a fat positive mm-hmm. approach. And I mentioned earlier the plus size model, Tess Halliday, and how she was the mm-hmm. first fat person on the cover of Cosmo and mm-hmm. how she was subsequently fat shamed oh, yeah. by all sorts of people, doctors, dietitians, trainers, wellness professionals. And she said, if I saw a body like mine on this magazine when I was a young girl, it would have changed my life. So since then, I've noticed a slight shift towards size diversity. There's quite a lot of people on Instagram these days posting more about that kind of stuff. What difference does fat representation make to young girls and men, to anyone in a fat body, I guess, or and to I, people? I wish it made more of a difference than I think it does. Um, okay. There was a magazine published here in the States back in the 80s called BBW, Big Beautiful Woman. Ah. I remember seeing the first issue that I ran across around 1982 or 83. And it was the first time that I saw fat women in beautiful clothes and lingerie. They had a swimsuit issue. Mm. That blew my mind. And so that was, it was terrific. The magazine folded um, at the beginning of the 90s. So nothing catering to my size. There was another one called More. They don't last because what happens is that fat people tend to internalize the messages that we receive about our bodies. And so we are against ourselves as much as anybody else is. So it's good to see. I mean, there's a television show here. It's This Is Us. Oh, uh, yes. Anyway, yep. Yeah, Chrissy Met. I think the way the character is portrayed is realistic. 
she agonizes about her weight. She sometimes tries to lose and doesn't. You know, there was a whole lot of stuff about that. The actress herself is pretty comfortable in her body, but the character is, I think, what most fat women are like. She gets criticized by the fat community for the character not being happy with being fat. Oh, yes. I wrote a blog post about, what was it, 15 shows to watch for body positivity Mm -hmm. or something like that. And that was one of the shows. And when I was coming across the critiques of it, there was a lot of negative critique about her not just being exactly, as you say, not being happy in her body and for her weight loss attempts but it, I actually thought this is actually more realistic because that's oh, what almost every realistic. fat person spends their whole life doing. Oh yeah yes absolutely and the other thing is the average plus size model is only about a size 16. Yes. <laughs> and since the average American woman is a size 14 so we can't really say two-thirds of American women are above a size American size 14. Mm-hmm. So that plus size model is average. So yep. we're not really seeing us. It's only very recently that companies specializing in clothing for fat women use fat models in their catalogs and ads. Yeah. And sometimes I kind of get the feeling with some of those, it's sort of to um, the motivation behind it is, I guess, advertising and trying to get their sort of name out there, not if, if you know what I mean, like it's sort of, um, yeah. it's trendy, it's trendy to do that at the moment. Yep. Well, the trouble is they used to make the argument and they had a basis for it is that fat women didn't like seeing fat women. So they use slender models because that's kind of the ego ideal. That's what I want to be. And so, of course, then you end up not knowing what the clothes are going to look like. Yeah. On your. (laughs) Which is terrible when you're in a big body because uh, they always hang in a strange Mm -hmm, kind of way. Yes. The saying is that for fat women, they've internalized that thin ideal and Mm -hmm. living from that place. Absolutely. Yeah. So something that happened to me recently, I had my Invisalign teeth fitted and I'd been mm-hmm. to the doctor and I went for a skin check and at every appointment, my weight was commented on mm-hmm. and the dentist made it, ah, oh, ha, 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 ha. You know, most people lose weight when they have Invisalign and the skin check, the lady, um, I've been vegetarian for 30 years, but she said, oh, I think, you know, maybe if you went on a paleo diet, you could lose a little bit of weight. I thought, oh, I thought I came for a skin check. <laughs> And yeah, what gets missed when health and wellness professionals solely focus on our weight? Well, they don't see you as a person at all. Yep. Uh, the first time I ever spoke back about that was um, my, I, I had carpal tunnel syndrome uh, during my second pregnancy. And it's not unusual in pregnancy for that to happen. Mm. But it persisted in the year after he was born. So this is like 40 years ago. So I was sent for this test, an electromyelogram, which I think is derived from medieval torture. So the doctor who administered the test afterwards, he said to me, Mrs. Aronson, that was my last name then, have you ever considered losing weight? (laughs) And I literally said, no, really? (laughs) People do that? And he looked at me and I said, if you can show me connection, a causal link between Mm. my weight and my wrist. Yeah. Given that I don't (laughs) habitually walk on my hands, then I'll take that under advisement. 
Yeah. And I was surprised that I did that because I'd never done that before. Mm. And he did send a note to my family doctor that I was non-compliant. <laughs> <laughs> non-compliant. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I was a bad patient. So you don't get seen as a person and sometimes it has deadly consequences. Yes. And one of the things that most of my practice is working with people with eating disorders mm-hmm. is that often the first thing, especially clients who are overweight, maybe they've got diabetes or they've got some others right. whatever going on and they get told by the doctor, you need to lose weight, you need to go on a diet. Now, what we know about eating disorders is that 99% of them, and this isn't the cause of an eating disorder, of course, but 99% of them start with dieting and dieting perpetuates eating disorder. So you've got a whole lot of people who are actually going to get sicker by being told to lose weight. I, I find myself in an interesting place in my life now. Two years ago, uh, I'll be 74 in, in a week. So, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. I was diagnosed two years ago with type two diabetes. Mm. Um, and actually they asked me, did I want to lose weight? And I said, no, not particularly, mm. but the best way to control type two diabetes is by eliminating as many carbs as possible from your diet. Mm-hmm. So I had to approach it. I had to very carefully tiptoe around this so because I didn't want to fall into a dieting mentality. God yep. knows I'd done that. And I managed to, I've managed to do that for two years mm. by just, this is, you know, I have diabetes. I'd like to keep my feet and my eyesight. And mm. so this is what I do. So I don't think of it as good and bad or anything like that. Incidentally, in the mm. first year, I lost 75 pounds. Mm. Wow. And I wasn't happy about that. I mean, I had to buy all new clothes. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, it's like, I'm still me, but that involved that I'm still fat, but it entailed a whole other level of, of dealing with it and walking that very narrow space that I cause where both and is. It is both true that I must monitor what I eat mm. and it's not about my weight. Yeah. So I think what you're saying with that, it's around, especially when people have dietary issues like diabetes or people who are celiac, for example, it's it's around having a certain, I know this is certainly what my dietitian speaks about is that it's around having some restraint around those certain foods rather than falling Mm -hmm. into that restriction, you know, and going all black and white about things which obviously can trigger old eating disorder behaviors in people who have struggled with that. Well, it's also not seeing it as something I'm going to do until something happens. Yeah. It's my experience is people go on a diet, like they go on a vacation. So they always come back. This isn't temporary. You know, this is, this is forever for me. Yeah. And so that's what I do. Yeah. And let's just sort of um, switch gears a little bit. In your other interview on Shrinkwrap, you told a story about, for people who don't know, it's uh, Irvin Yalom. He's a very esteemed <gasps> therapist mm-hmm. and yeah. um, who I'd always kind of idealized until I heard you talk about him. <laughs> and the story when I sort of, after I listened to the interview, I got the book out and I can't remember which one it's from, maybe Love's Execution. Love's Execution. It is, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I read the story. And so I wanted to uh, open that up a bit further here today. And the chapter is called The Fat Lady and it is about his client, Betty. And the story's, you know, a a little bit lengthy, but I'll read it out. Uh, So he writes, I grew up in a racially segregated Washington, D.C., the only son of the only white family in the midst of a black neighborhood. In the streets, the black attacked me for my whiteness and in school, the white attacked me for my Jewishness. But there was always fatness, the fat kids, the big asses, the butts of jokes, those last chosen for athletics teams and those unable to run the circle of the track. I needed someone to hate too. Maybe that was where I learned it. Of course, I'm not alone in my bias. Cultural reinforcement is everywhere. Whoever has a kind word for the fat lady. But my contempt surpasses all cultural norms. In my early career, I worked in a maximum security prison where the least heinous offence committed by any of my patients was a simple single murder. Yet I had little difficulty accepting those patients, attempting to understand them and finding ways to be supportive. But when I see a fat lady eat, I move down a couple of rungs on the ladder of human understanding. I want to tear the food away to push her face into the ice cream. Stop stuffing yourself. Haven't you had enough for Christ's sakes? I'd like to wire her jaws shut. Mm-hmm. Poor Betty. Thank God, thank God. Knew none of this as she innocently continued her course towards my chair, slowly lowering her body, arranged her folds, and with her feet not quite touching the floor, looked up at me expectantly. So I feel like I just need to breathe after reading that. So I have a couple of things that I want to touch on here. So the first thing is uh, a couple of weeks ago, I read an article to do with Black Lives Matter and it Mm -hmm. was discussing how thin privilege and diet culture can't be separated from racism. So I'm Mm -hmm. I'm now curious about Yalom's statements around that, Um, especially being the only white family surrounded by blacks and fat people. And the second is obviously coming back to Betty and I guess every other fat lady in therapy. What was she looking up expectedly for that she no doubt never received? This wasn't just casual eight session Mm. um, cognitive behavioral therapy. She she was seeing an analyst Mm. and we look for freedom is really what we're looking for to to find acceptance and care Mm. in the face of the other. As I listened to you reading it, what struck me again is he doesn't speak of those feelings in the past tense. He speaks of them in the present tense. Yeah. So he still so, so he still has that. Yeah. But as you go on, he believes he was not communicating that. Well, of course mm. he was. It was his countertransference to her was loaded with that. Mm. And although it may not have been spoken, it was in the room mm. and in his attitude toward her. Mm. It's very sad. When I read that, I actually felt, uh, the first time I read it, I thought, oh, I actually felt sick. And because just thinking back to my own first, my first therapy was uh, psychosynthesis psychotherapy. So that was Mm -hmm. three three times a week for maybe six, seven years. And Mm -hmm. just knowing how wounded I was and Mm -hmm. how unaccepting of myself I was and Mm -hmm. actually self-loathing. And it was really through the love and 
acceptance and compassion and truly feeling loved by my therapist that I could actually start to love myself regardless of what my body looked like. So for, for me, this story is an absolute tragedy because this Betty, whoever she is, has, has and, and this, I'm sure there's lots of Bettys out there, has gone to, res, to to have something corrected that, you know, a correctional experience, but has ended up actually, uh, I suspect, being re-wounded in some way. Well, and he said she, by the end of the treatment, she'd lost 100 pounds. You and I both know she's regained all that weight. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so even thinking that the weight loss is the solution. Exactly. My first analyst once said to me, well, don't you think you could lose a little weight? Mm. And I said, how much would be enough? Mm. You know, would five pounds, 10 pounds, 50 pounds, what is enough? And who am I doing that for? Because mm. I'm not initiating that. Mm. You are. That's one of the reasons we couldn't do But in my analysis with my second analyst, uh, we were able to fight through that. Mm. And I think something that he brought to me that is very difficult to find in the fat acceptance movement is Mm. that it's not just that there's meaning one of the reasons i'm a union is because we look at what does this mean yeah that 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 symptoms have meaning yeah and i write in the book about a big chunk of my book is an argument with marion woodman oh yes i read Um, that (laughs) yeah because her book infuriated me which and one addiction to perfection is, owl, no the, the, oh, owl the owl was a baker's daughter. daughter yep yep oh and so he told me i needed to deal with those objections mm-hmm. you know, i needed to do that so i fought my way through it and in the <laughs> process began to get that it's you know it's like my eyes are brown and i can't change my eye color mm-hmm. well, i could put colored lenses on but I can't change my eye color, but the fact that I am among the brown-eyed people in the mm. world is meaningful. I don't have blue eyes. You know, it's like, it's, that's a trivial example, but it's the same is true with my body that I may be genetically endowed with the capacity to store energy. That's not all that it's about, mm. and, nor is the fact that I had a negative mother all that it's about, which is what I really wanted it to be, either all psychological are all physiological yeah. because any, it, somehow that would take me off the hook. But it's not. It's both and mm. because the body and the mind travel together. Absolutely. And, I mean, he's not the only therapist that thinks like that. I oh, wrote, no. You know, I, he's I wrote, the majority. He is. And I, I wrote to you in our email exchange that, you know, I'm in a lot of therapist groups online and um, there's some very heated discussions around you know, someone will talk about how do I, which they shouldn't be doing online anyway, but how do I support this client in losing weight or blah, blah, blah. Mm. And you'll get quite a few people in there saying, please see a Hayes health at every size therapist or, but one of the comments from people is why would I take a health at every size approach when I should be supporting and encouraging the client to lose weight? And I'm client centered and I'm going to focus on what the client wants. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So, so if the client wants to run around slashing people's throats, I'll support that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But when it comes to weight, that's acceptable to say that. Of course. I always describe um, it as the last socially acceptable prejudice. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I, in the process of writing the book, I, I wanted to see, if any therapists who were fat had written about being fat. Mm. And there were three in all of the literature. (laughs) 
Wow. And, um, and one of them, um, she lost a lot of weight, regained it, and then she had bariatric surgery. So it's like she hadn't dealt with the issue of her body herself. Mm-hmm. And in the Jungian literature, there was only one article that directly addressed fat. I, I don't use the term obesity because yep. it's re- it references a disease. Yep. And I'm a diabetic, but I don't feel that my my fat is diseased. Mm. So there was one article written by a union on fatness and she equated it to gluttony. So it's a topic that seems pretty clearly to be taboo Mm. across the board. So it's very difficult to find therapists who don't have the attitude that a marker of success in the therapy is that the patient loses Mm. weight. Mm. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to those therapists the majority of therapists who (laughs) well they should buy my book of course of course Um, (laughs) but they need to do some hard work on their own attitudes about their bodies Mm, mm. and other people's bodies because if you scratch the surface of this fat bias underneath it you find a tremendous anxiety about mm. their own bodies, whether it's acknowledged or not. For a long time, there were always one or two anorexics in my practice. And I used to sit there sometimes thinking, this is really interesting. I am this young woman's nightmare. And we did good work together. But so what is what, your fat patient? What does she represent to you? What fears does she arouse in you? Because that's what the issue is. Because yep. that's the counter-transference. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember holding a group therapy for eating disorder patients and one of them challenging me saying, if, if you're in a big body, how can you be recovered from your eating disorder? And mm-hmm. just having that, you know, obviously that very, very harsh judgment that anyone who, mm-hmm. is, who is recovered must be in that, uh, I guess, thin ideal still, I guess. So, yeah, so a lot of work to be done. And coming back to the Yalom story and the Black mm. Lives Matter, I mean, this is only something I've just read about the last few weeks, so I'm not that up on that, to be honest. But what do you make of that in terms of what's happening in the world at the moment and around the thin ideal and fat and racism? Do you have a... I don't any- have a take on it. So I, mm. I just saw and haven't yet read mm. an article of, about why BMI is a racist measure, which uh-huh. sounds interesting to me. I'm not sure that the pressure to, to be thin is any less now. Mm. Uh, among African Americans than among white Americans because it's you know we're all up against the same concerns about appearance. Yeah, it's, some, it's, it's like, certainly a topic that I'd like to read a little bit more about. So um, most of the women that I work with in my psychotherapy practice around disordered eating, food, and uh, weight issues also have a history of complex trauma and childhood emotional mm-hmm. neglect. So there's trauma at at this level, and, and I think you've touched a little bit on, on that around in therapy, but you also talk about the trauma of living in a fat body. Can you say more about that? Yeah. When I finish, Samantha Morton, I think, is Australian. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I, I used, I read a lot of her, what she had written. Um, and it was from things that she, stuff that she wrote and thinking about my own experience, I realized that 
walking around in a, in a body that's seen as wrong, that's despised, rejected, critiqued, is in and of itself traumatic. So mm. you're experiencing mm. microaggressions anytime you walk out of your house. Oh, um, absolutely. And that is a trauma. So that mm. there's, it's its own, whatever traumas may underlie being fat, you then have the trauma of being fat, which is, I think Roxane Gay wrote really well about that in Hunger, about uh, yep. not knowing you know, would she be able to get on the stage? Would the chair accommodate her? Mm. Um, I live in a nice small town in Maine. I can't buy clothes in my Mm. town. Yeah, it's like uh, almost every stepping outside your house, any kind of anything that happens, it's to do with weight. It's very, it's so shameful. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, like you're talking about, if you go to buy clothes and there's nothing there that fits, it's shameful. If you go to, you know, you go to the, like me, go to the doctor for your teeth and, and, and it's, it's like there's some level of shame attached to it. It's right. um, No one. If you're going to take a fat, if you're going to take a vacation, um, are you going to need a seatbelt extender on the plane? Mm -hmm. Is somebody going to come and sit next to you? you and want to be moved because you're too wide you know it's always there Mm. yeah so people in fat bodies that there's not only that sometime not always but the trauma but then there's the added trauma on top of that Mm -hmm. it's very painful there's a book i can't remember the title of it now eating is in the title it was written by a group of feminist and psychoanalysts in new york Mm. uh, who were affiliated loosely with Susie Orbach. Uh-huh. And one of them, Eating is, I think is what the title is. One of them talks about a woman that she worked with who was fat, very fat. And she said, and she said um, one of the challenges is if you have a body that is way outside the range of normal or mm-hmm. average, part of what you have to accept, adjust to is the freakishness of that. It's like if you're a little person, you know, and you're and you're really short, you can't pretend that you're going to get tall. Mm. You have to adjust to your difference. Yeah. And and that's incredibly difficult. You know, yeah. it's like in order to inhabit your body, you have to accept its freakishness. Yeah. And I guess that sort of leads me on to the next question around um, for women who are trapped in fat shaming themselves and weight cycling mm. and disordered eating, where do they start in terms of, I guess, acceptance and, yeah, accepting? One of the gifts the internet has brought us is, um, and I talk about this some in the book, that fat community exists online but not face-to-face. Uh-huh. And so, so you can, you know, it's like um, the gay community and there's gay bars and no fat bars, <laughs> not a fat. Maybe we need that. Um, but you know, there's no, there's no resort where all the fat people go. Mm. Um, so, so community has developed online mm. and there are communities where you can talk about being fat without being punished for it, where you can see other fat bodies um, the fat, fat, the fat chinista, mm. you know, it's just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. gloriously fat women with clothes who love clothes. So you could begin, you have to train your eye to see the fat bodies and to not recoil from them 
And in the also at the same time, be looking at your own body. You yeah. have to look at your body because yeah. most of us look at ourselves from the neck up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like hours and hours of Zoom, and I see my face all the time. Yeah. So I become a head, uh, not a headless fatty, a bodiless fatty. So to start with um, connecting to any of these pieces of mm. fat community online, where you, it's not about dieting, it's not about getting smaller, it's about accepting who you are and accepting doesn't mean you have to love it you don't have to love how you look you have to accept it it's just like you don't have to be beautiful in a review of my book that was in fat studies journal it was a lovely review positive review but and i talked about in the book that i don't like to wear sleeveless blouses or dresses because i don't like the flab on my arm Mm. i don't hate it but you know Mm. i don't like it so i don't want to look at it and I used a pun, you know, that uh, while I support the right to bear arms, I choose not to bear mine. Uh-huh. And she expresses the hope that I could feel beautiful. And I thought, why do I have to be beautiful? You know, yeah. it's, like, it's yeah. not necessary. I just don't want to expose my arms. And yeah. it's not about, out of hatred. So you don't have to love all of it. And you've got to deal with the reality that there are going to be lots of days when mm. you catch a glimpse of yourself in a window as you walk by or in the mirror and you, and you have an initial, oh, and then mm. you say, oh, it's okay. It's mm. just me. I know her here in Australia. I don't know if you've heard of her, but Sarah Harry, she started Fat Yoga. Uh-huh. And yes. there's, you know, I know there's some groups like that around now too. I actually, she was in Sydney doing something for Special K and I actually went to her. They were filming and whatever else. And I went to the class and it was, it was fantastic. It was really, mm-hmm. really great. So there's other things like that popping up now too as well, I think. Right. But- and available online. There's, there's one, I, I, why can't I think of it now? Because I have the app, but I can't see it because it's <laughs> elsewhere. Um, all of the all of the women involved are fat. They have um, aerobic and anaerobic. You know, it's it's great because they're all fat, not just plus size model fat. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, really fat. One of the other ones that I love, she's called Dancers with Fat. Um, yes. And one of the things that I talk about more and more is just moving your body in ways that you love. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what size you are, it's everyone can move their body, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so one of the things that I get a lot in my practice is really around young women. And I often mm-hmm. get, it's okay for you, Jody. you are old and married already. I'm right, 20 something. Right. It's different being fat at my age. So it is. it is. So what advice would you give to young women struggling with their weight, especially in obviously with Instagram and the Kylie Jenners of the world and size zeros and uh, the thin ideal and diet culture, just sort of being bombarded with that every single day. What about someone who's 20 and fat? It is difficult. And if we hate ourselves for how we are, whether we say that out loud or not, we communicate that. Mm. And we can't look to someone else to make us feel that we're okay, that our bodies are okay. So even for the, and there's no denying that there's a bias. Young men are taught for the most part that they want to find you know, their ideal and their eyes are educated to prefer a particular kind of body too. But there are men out there who don't have a template for what they want. Mm. You know, it just has to be five, six and a size eight, and, you know, <laughs> uh, red hair. Um, yeah. It has to start 
with the young woman accepting herself because if she doesn't, she's not going to get what she's looking for from, from a man and she's likely to settle for way less than she wants. Polly Young Eisendrath wrote a, a book about women and desire mm. and she talked about how often women confuse wanting to be wanted with being loved. Mm. And so we have a tendency to see ourselves as dolls on the shelf. And whatever man picks us must be the right one because he picked us. So any critical analysis of that goes out the window because he chose me. And if I don't accept that, then there's something wrong with me. So it's a complicated issue. It starts with accepting who and what you are. Mm. And then to feel that you deserve what it is that you want, that you deserve to have a partner who treasures you, who values you, who loves you in and your body, loves mm. your fleshy excess, you know, it's like mm-hmm. just loves you. I think this sort of will lead into, for anyone considering going into therapy to work through any of these issues that we've been talking mm. about, why, and it's one of the things that I'm very passionate about, I was trained in depth psychotherapy by an analyst and Uh why depth psychotherapy you know there are so many um acronym based therapies out there Uh and (laughs) short-term fixes and they kind of remind me of diets you know Um, oh yeah why would a young person why would they go into why depth psychotherapy because we are the sum of all of our experiences both positive and negative. Mm. And to the extent that we are hobbled by some of those experiences, our degrees of freedom are limited. Mm. So it's not that that depth therapy, psychotherapy can make you, I don't even talk a whole lot about healing mm. because that assumes that you're broken, yeah. um, but that you can become more complete. And in that, you have more freedom Mm. so that you don't have to react automatically out of what we call complexes. And to have more freedom, you know, so that you, you know, you don't have to be what everybody has told you you are, uh, where you can begin to define yourself. Um, That's the only way to do it. Changing your thoughts can help with small, limited problems. It's like, I, I imagine... Uh, a cognitive approach is really it can be good for a spider phobia, for example. Mm, sure. Because it can help you reduce the symptoms of the spider phobia, but will mm. tell you nothing about what that's about, what it means. Yeah, absolutely. There was just one other thing. Thinking about uh, my daughter's 11, so she came home when mm-hmm. she was eight and said, you know, everyone, all the other girls are asking, Do I look fat at eight? So if a parent does have a fat, daughter or son. Mm-hmm. What advice have you got for them? Well, I can tell you what I did with my daughter. I wrote a piece about this. It's called Sleeping Beauty's Mother. Mm. That they were told that when she was 16, she would prick her finger on a spindle and die. And then it got mitigated to that they, they would all fall asleep. And so they frantically tried to eliminate all the spindles, but of course they couldn't. Mm. And so it happened. So I really did not want my child to have to deal with what I have dealt with in my life. And mm-hmm. I didn't do dieting or anything, but I, I thought if I can eliminate all the traps and she was very, she was really small until she hit puberty. That's one of the ages of onset. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I just, I've been working with myself. I had stopped dieting. I had really internalized mm -hmm. some of the fat as a feminist issue stuff. And I was dealing with my own material. And then I was in analysis. So I kept talking to her about there are, you know, there are lots of different kinds of bodies and there's nothing wrong with your body mm -hmm. and really emphasizing that with her. And of course, she went through periods of time when she wanted to diet or lose weight, but she never stayed with it and she didn't hate herself. So, you know, we got through to her adulthood without her ever having dieted. So it really is a, I mean, I find the attitude of, of the parent and it, yep. if a parent is dieting and, and worrying about weight and has internalized that thin ideal, then it's inevitable that it, it sort of gets passed down to the child. So there's a lot of work to be done, I think, for parents in that respect. Absolutely, especially in two ways. As women, we learn everything we know about our bodies from our mothers. You know, yep. we get our bodies from our mothers. And we learn everything we know about how attractive or not we are from our fathers. So the message from both parents, they need to find some kind of acceptance mm. so that the girl doesn't grow up feeling that she's undesirable. So it comes back again, and uh, it, this might be a good point to end, around acceptance. Absolutely. And it's hard work. <laughs> it is. It is. So Cheryl, are you still taking clients? Do you, yes, I am. You are. Okay. So how can people get in touch with you to either read your book or to get in touch for some depth psychotherapy? My book is available on Amazon and I was tickled. I looked and I saw that now you can buy it in paperback or you can, or in Kindle or rent it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if I get any royalty from renting books. Yeah. But <laughs> um, so they can get, that's the easiest place to get it is Amazon. Uh -huh. and. To get in touch with me, you can go to my website, which is yung-at-heart.com. And for some and there's people, a contact form there. I, have a G I can give you my email address as well. What I will do is I'll put that in the show notes, but um, just, sure. for, just for people who are listening, Jung is mm -hmm. spelled J-U-N-G because you, there'll be some young mm -hmm. people out there who might not even yes. know who that is. Yes. <laughs> so, um, okay, fantastic. So, look, thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, thank you. I, I think this conversation is really going to get women thinking and, you know, will hopefully go a long way in helping them to become more accepting of themselves. And for people who are listening who aren't in a fat body, they will also take a lot from this conversation as well. And hopefully, you know, especially therapists, uh, so important for clients to be yes. able to trust us. So, yes. Okay. So thank, thanks for thank, coming. Thank you for, for inviting me. Okay, Cheryl. Thanks very much. This is episode seven. You can go to the show notes at thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul session seven the trauma of being fat. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.